0: All right. So welcome, everyone. Welcome. We are now uh, live, live on Facebook, live to the world, and live in person. Woohoo! Yay. Dent Live. So thanks for coming out, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, for those of you who are a little bit new to Dent, uh, Dent is, of course, a reference to the Steve Jobs quote, we're here to put a dent in the universe. And uh, we started in 2012. Launched
1: in 2012, first big thing we did was March of 2013.
0: And it was, we, we started as this conference to try and get at the roots of what it takes to put a dent in the universe. And it was a, a remarkably fun and successful event with about 100 people uh, who basically went home going, why did this stop? Can we do another one now? <laughs> and so we have uh, grown that uh, from that sort of annual conference into this community, Uh, that gets together throughout the year, and we find ways to stay connected and reconnect through experiences. And uh, I'm going to take a little bit of extra time at the top of this episode because this morning we just formally uh, announced that the conference for next year has been scheduled for March 23rd to 26th in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, which we're really excited about. Santa Fe is just A magical town we went for the first uh, had you been there before
1: never been there
0: we went for the first time uh like a month and a half ago and I understand now why people move to Santa Fe
1: like they go for no like some reason they're like oh I was there for a week I've had friends and then they go on vacation and come back and say I'm moving there (laughs) (laughs) okay so yeah
0: I'm looking forward to it it's very denty um so we're very excited about that we also, for the show, we have um, a couple of partners, a couple of great partners. This uh, venue is The Collective, which is a new urban clubhouse in South Lake Union. They have a bunch of wonderful facilities here right in the heart of Seattle. Um, it's beautiful. It's fun. It's a, it's a charming community that's, that's being built here.
1: Parking's good, and the food is awesome.
0: It, it's true. The food is awesome and we have uh, also a, a partner Wool and Prince Wool and Prince is actually a clothing company that makes this shirt that That's shirt it's, it's made out of wool um, and, and it's for princes, and uh, yeah, and it's for princes like yeah. like me, and princesses. <laughs> they make both. Uh, they span the gender uh, gamut. But the the idea is they make really simple, durable clothing, so you don't need to buy and throw away a shirt every six months. It's it's fashionable. It's comfortable. Um, it's a really a great product, and I'm glad they're a sponsor because I'm a customer. Um, I started uh, wearing these shirts, you know, about a year ago, and it's all I wear now. So if you are interested in learning more, you can check it out at dentthefuture.com wool, and that'll take you over to the site. And if you decide to, to pick something up, if you input the code DENT when you're checking out, you'll get 10% off your first order. So I think that's and it for top of the show.
1: Talk about Bootstrappers. I, I,
0: I, I like to talk about Bootstrapper after but people see how great the work, they are. Yes. But Bootstrapper is the uh, is the group that's doing the video and the broadcast, and they do a great job. They've done... Uh, Ignite Seattle for a, more than a decade. Um, and they do a, if you need, have you have video needs, check them out. So with that out of the way, um, I'm excited to have Anargia on the show. Hello. Um, so let's start by, I actually want to go back in time to, um, as a kid, you have talked about in other interviews that uh, you had a really interesting, um, you know, Family uh, Culture that pushed you In interesting ways Like having to talk To strangers And like <laughs> You know get, Being sort of Puzzled by thought And math problems Throughout your childhood Can you Is there a, a Favorite anecdote Or something like that You'd want to share About <laughs> about that time maybe, maybe So many
1: First just a quick Overview of Who you are And what you're doing For the For those oh, that fine. just came sure. in And didn't read the oh, Or I we could just the- be
2: Mysterious the whole time <laughs> Um, So who I am, my name is Anargia Vardana. Um, I live and work in San Francisco, but come to Seattle often. I'm here today and happy to be here. I work at a venture capital firm called Maveron, and Maveron was founded here in Seattle uh, almost exactly 20 years ago by my partner Dan Levitan and Howard Schultz, and they founded it with the premise that you can build these amazing consumer experiences and wrap them in brand and build businesses that have longevity and loyalty for extended periods of time. And why not do that with technology? Why not use technology to build it in a better, faster, more efficient way, wrap that in brand and invest in companies that are doing that. So uh, Mavron has been doing that for 20 years and I have not been there for 20 years, but I've been there for almost three and love what I do, love investing in cutting edge consumer brands. And we do seed in series A, so early stage. And I spend, a lot of my time in Silicon Valley, come up here to Seattle once or twice a month, and then I'm on an airplane a lot to LA, New York, and I'm a Pacific Northwest native, so it's always nice to be back. I uh, grew up in Beaverton, Oregon.
0: Nice. All right. All right.
2: Yeah. Now the anecdote. Now the anecdote. Um, So you're right. I had a very interesting childhood. So I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And my parents and I immigrated from India. I was born in India and we came here when I was a little over a year old after my first birthday. And when we came to Beaverton, we were kind of the only brown people for miles and uh, my parents are always like oh they're not entrepreneurs but I always tell them you are entrepreneurs you came to this new country this new community and kind of started from scratch everything from getting involved and, and helping start a temple and Indian restaurants and grocery stores to starting and, and uh, helping grow the Indian community there so that, that was our live for a a very long time building that up, and it's me, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And as, as you saw in some interviews, my parents are, are very focused on math and science, and that's what we spent a lot of our, our youth doing. My dad grew up with three brothers, And he was like, I don't know what to do with daughters, and I'll do what I do anyways, which is hike and code. And so that's kind of what we grew up doing, hiking, coding, soldering, building things at home, which was an amazing childhood. And especially as a girl, um, I'm grateful I had that experience because it wasn't until... I got to college that I realized how privileged I was to have all this exposure to STEM as a girl early on. Um, and so, so, fun story. Uh, my parents don't really believe in being shy. They're like, you just kinda gotta go out into the world and do your thing. So my sister and my dad and I are in Home Depot once and there's some guy in the aisle looking for some piece of lumber as one does in Home Depot. And my dad's like, he looks like a math professor. Go talk to him. Go ask him if he's a math professor. And we're like, why, what, what does what does this even mean? Why would he be a math professor? But he's like, no, you have to go ask him. So we go up to him, we're like, Are you a math professor? He's like, No. We're like, okay, he's not a math professor. But this is just an example of our parents being like, be bold, go do things, don't be scared to talk to people because you never know what you will uncover. My family, we just went on vacation last week and this was still the experience. 20 years later, we're at the airport, and Mattel's like, that guy looks like a math professor. It's always the math professor. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: that's, I mean, so that's great. I, I love what that teaches a person about the world. Like there's this uh, sense of uh, agency in the idea that you can go out and, you know, Push on something here in the world, change a, a person's opinion over here, and watch something change over there. That that's how, you know, that's how you create
1: change. Um, well, remember, Ever- Everett Harper was talking about how being generous with your curiosity, yeah. how important that is. Anyway, so that's sort of the thing we we love to talk about too. Is just yeah, get in there and find out.
2: And you just never know, kind of the the bond or the connection you may form with this individual, and maybe it lasts. 35 seconds of them telling you they're not a math professor or maybe it goes into a longer conversation, but I think it's the actual act of taking that extra effort and going up to someone, especially in a world where, we, where it's increasingly transactional. I um, mean, it's very easy to, you know, jump into a Lyft or an Uber and just have your headphones in and be in and be out, but taking that extra effort to, to talk to someone.
0: For me, a litmus test is, do you want to call for pizza? Right? Like, that's an interesting yeah. litmus test for yeah. me. And, and I, I think we're we're jumping a lot around a little on topics here, but this is an opportunity to talk about where we are with our relationship uh, as a society with technology mm-hmm. and whether we feel like we're in the driver's seat or the passenger seat on that relationship, which mm-hmm. is a weird feeling to have when you're sort of making the technology. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly a, a sense of inevitability to things being shared online and things being you know, technology coming in between certain relationships, whether it's, uh, you know, dating online yep. versus, and I'm wondering if you have a sense at this point in time, as you look at all the, you know, especially consumer facing, you know, startups you look at and, and the, every every single startup probably has like a theory behind it, yep. like a theory of, of where we are in the world and what needs to change. Are you, what's your sense from looking at that? as to where we are as a society with our relationship with technology. Let's go deep right away.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So um, my, my undergraduate studies was in an interdisciplinary major called Science, Technology, and Society, which looks at the relationship between people and technology, and in particular, emphasizing the fact that they are codependent neither is going to evolve and go without the other. We are increasingly dependent on technology we have been and technology continues to evolve and change because of because of us. And what's awesome is that oftentimes you feel like your undergraduate degree never applies into your career, but as a consumer <laughs> investor, this is what I spend all my days thinking about. How is technology impacting consumers and how are regular people changing the use case for technology? And you know, I my job is to look at companies. I meet five companies a day, and just do the math, there's a lot of companies every year that I'm looking at. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how do these technologies integrate into the lives of people? How do people incorporate them? Why do they use them? And if we think about some of the ubiquitous technologies we have today, everything from social media to on-demand services to even things like Google, which all of us are extremely reliant on, they have found some kind of hook that make them integral to our lives. And that touches upon your question in another sense, which is, are those hooks always good? Maybe not, but there is a, there's a sense of our lives being augmented and perhaps improved and allowing us to do a whole number of new things because these technologies exist. And I think how we really frame that is that oftentimes you have to let your customers speak for you. The technology may exist but the customers may say, "Oh, that's nice that you built this for this reason, but here's why I'm using it." And a lot of the best founders that we invest in understand how to listen to the consumer and how to evolve that technology based on on what they're hearing.
0: And what do you think about So that's the other the other voice that's now piping up is that of, you know, laws. I mean, gdpr is the you know front of perhaps we suspect i got all the emails (laughs) so like i mean where where what do you think about that is that is that part of the right system of of a relationship between humans and technology and 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 business
1: and and people or is that or is the pendulum swinging too far
2: you know I, i don't know if i have the right answer to this i think it's, a, it's complicated and it will continue to be complicated. And we have to think about who is building the technologies, um, who is using the technologies, making sure that the people who are building are, are representative of the user base, are listening to the user base, and thinking about the ethical and moral repercussions for the user base. I think every pillar of society will have a voice in this, and hopefully we'll have a voice in this, whether that's legal, economic, social, uh, humanitarian, all these folks are going to have some peace in it, and to your point, at some times there's going to be some that have a louder voice than others, and that pendulum may swing stronger in certain areas, but I think... For us, as you know, citizens of the world, as users of these technologies, it's really important that we keep voicing the concerns that we may have, and also making sure that those concerns bubble up to whoever is the representative—folks putting capital in the companies or making laws about the companies. Yeah.
1: Are you—are you seeing the new—the new privacy laws and the the um, anticipation of additional legislation? having any any sort of dampening effect on either startups or on investing or anything else? What do you see? Yeah,
2: Yeah, you know, we're investing at the early stage and a lot of the companies are figuring out product market fit, figuring out the acquisition channels for acquiring customers. But more so than before, one of the elements in their pitch deck or one of the things that they're considering is what are... The risk factors involved. How do we think about consumer data? How do we think about storing it? Making sure that we earn and continue to earn the trust of our customers. I think that is that is paramount, and a lot of our businesses need to make sure that they earn it upfront and, and continue to to deserve that respect and
0: trust. So one of the things. Sorry to jump in, but like one one of the things that um, I heard you say earlier is. It just in passing, is this idea that as long as the people who are building the technology are representative of you know the population that's using it, um, which is which is know, not that, always the case, which is not <laughs> always the case. And if, I mean, it's like Dent has a Gender Avenger Award because we, from 2013 when we d- hosted our first event, we've made a very big effort. It's like every time, every year, our events we have at least 50% of the speakers are women. That's awesome. We do a lot of work to make sure it's a you know it's a broad range of other types of representation on stage and it's it's hard work but we feel it's really important work because what you develop when you have that kind of perspective is different than what you develop when you don't and so do you think that that's i well this is a gimme but like do you think that's part of you know <laughs> where we should go with this but the follow up is you know you've you've spent some time working specifically on Providing more funding opportunities to people that typically don't get funding, yeah. and mentoring in that space. Yeah. And so, do you want to talk about a little bit how you've been approaching that, and where you think that's yeah moving as an industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, a couple of different things. And part of part of being a VC is the desire and honestly the privilege to to exercise your brain and see around corners and spend a lot of time thinking about what's next, what's next, and one category that I care a lot about is companies that are building products, services, apps for underrepresented communities, communities that are systematically overlooked. And this could be kind of the resurgence in femtech, so apps, services, products for women. It could be things that are being built for low-income communities, for communities of color. I mean, all of these communities have high desire to use technology, have deep technology penetration, but a lot of the companies that are sometimes floating around the tech circles of the valley or wherever are oftentimes for the 1% of the 1%. And it's yet another way for me to get an $18 burrito, which is not that interesting. (laughs) Um, And and frankly, probably not that great for for the universe. And so um, there's a number of ways in which one can address this. I think the first way is really enabling resources for these communities and making sure that the founders who are building these uh, companies, often consumer companies, are diverse and representative of the customers that will be using these products and services. And the resources could be in the form of mentoring, information, capital, of course. Um, But oftentimes, it's, it's even before the capital. It is providing the right information for women founders or founders of color around what is a venture scale company? How do you pitch a VC? How do you even contact VCs? A lot of that information is often quite opaque and, and hard to access unless you're in kind of these hallowed circles, which are often not on not yeah. that diverse. So I spent a lot of time with that.
0: I, yeah, so I, I know some people have been experimenting with like automated ways of getting you know, companies to see to sort of eliminate the idea of, oh, I'm using bias. my network as a bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you played with any of that? Do you think it's effective? Do you I, think that's... Yeah.
2: Well, on, honestly, I, have, I haven't played with any of the software to access kind of the unbiased uh, resumes, I think, without the, right. with the name obfuscated or gender obfuscated or race obfuscated. Um, but a lot of times the the nature of venture is that the deal flow comes from your network, um, and if the networks aren't diverse, then the deal flow that you're getting is not gonna be diverse, and so you're not gonna be diverse founders. So I think at the early stages, it's oftentimes difficult to algorithmically look at companies because some of the companies are in someone's you know office room in their house or in their garage working on ideas. So, we spend a lot of time thinking about the diversification of our networks um, and making sure that the people sitting around our table are continuing to add to the Venn diagram of who they know that is beyond what that initial circle has been. And so I spend a lot of time in that, whether that's working with organizations like Deaf Color, which is for African-American and black engineers, or um, Girls Who Code, or Black Girls Code, or connecting into these different pockets. And and organizations like All Raise, which which you might have heard of, which is an initiative around... Um, diversifying funders and founders help with getting the loud public voice out and using those channels again to continue to diversify the channels of founders.
0: I've got one more, and then I'll pass the baton for a minute. Yeah, sure. The um, is there a popular like a customer base that you are just waiting for someone to pitch you on? Like, hey, I've got a startup that is going to totally change the world for you know yeah. black women <laughs> in the south. I don't yeah, know, like no, that's- is
2: there, there, are, there are so many pockets of these. I mean, um, I've seen companies that are targeting immigrant population, immigrant populations or refugee populations, people that are coming to the US or to other uh, countries and are coming with perhaps very little network, no credit score. Credit score is such an interesting problem in America. I know when my parents first came here, I mean, you know, my dad came with a very reliable job, but, but had no credit, couldn't get an apartment, couldn't get a car. And you have to kind of navigate around the people you know to be able to get these things that many of us can take for granted. Like, of course I can go get an apartment type of thing. So I think immigrant communities, specifically low-income immigrant communities, refugee communities around education, access to capital as a tool, finances, um, even things for childcare are really, really important. So interested in companies like that. Um, But I think overarching, I mean, low-income communities who have largely been ignored by a lot of the startups um, and tech companies, but again, have high desire for technology, you know, one of our portfolio companies is called Imperfect Produce, launched here in, in the Washington area, so shameless plug for them, subscribe if you don't. They sell ugly, ugly fruits and vegetables directly to customers at discounts. So they source, uh, you know, lumpy potatoes, misshapen eggplants, carrots that are too big that wouldn't sell on the traditional grocery store aisle. It yeah.
1: well, is carrots too big, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, well people imagine. won't pick them out. People
2: won't pick them out off the grocery aisle. So they source them Those and are the and Hanford carrots. I think <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. can you can make a lot a lot of stew with that carrot. <laughs> um, but right. they source them and sell them at discount, and the customer base is super broad. Yeah.
0: So that's great. I, so I'm going to end cap that for a second because I'm a total pattern matching thinker. Sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned passing uh, I think there's a family history in your case of uh, looking for oil at some point in time <laughs> and I think of the oil, oil exploration in VC as somewhat similar businesses on a, like a, a higher level yeah. you know plane and you've got this time period in time in oil exploration where it was mm-hmm. like poke a hole and oil comes out. Yeah. And then it got a little bit harder and now we're kind of we're at fracking where it's like you gotta really wanna get that oil. You gotta work for of it. it, but you gotta it's like this is not and now maybe we are ready to make a shift like that in consumer vent- venture capital where it's like, yeah, we're done selling $18 burritos to Bay Area people like let's go do the uh, fracking of VC and like <laughs> get at target markets that when you go into a you know a business pitch and you go, I'm gonna reach three million poor people And the investors like, well what's where's the return on that? It's like, well, maybe there's something to be had there It's just harder work.
2: yeah.
1: Well, my—I don't—I don't. There's no question. That's your there. transition, just a yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a matter. It's a of process. Totally. I mean, just totally. So, I mean you, you
2: have to look beyond. You have to look beyond the obvious. And I think our job is to find things and help grow them and partner with the founders to grow them from obscurity to ubiquity. And that's something my partner Dan Levitan says all the time, obscurity to ubiquity. And so obscurity means, you know, nobody knows them. They may be in random pockets all over the country. They may come from unexpected founders or traditionally overlooked founders. And it's our job to go unearth them. And I think having that philosophy and mindset is extremely important. And, you know, for me, I think that a lot of people have taken chances on me and have given me the opportunity where someone may be like, you know, why, why is she doing this? Why is she getting to do this? And I hope that in my career, I can pay that forward to as many people as possible.
1: So let's say the people in the room, and also we've got a whole bunch of people watching over Facebook, for those of us either in the room or not, that are non-traditional entrepreneurs and they're looking to... Accelerate, move into ubiquity somehow. Yeah. Where's sort of the first place you would steer them to maybe in terms of a community or an online destination to kind of help accelerate that progress?
2: Yeah, I think it's a number of different things. Um, you know, in various cities, there's opportunities to plug into the entrepreneurial community. One of the first places I think is to go... Um, you know, if you don't have perhaps a network through the university in that area, a lot of the universities have entrepreneurial programs, but let's say someone does not have that network. Um, plugging into category specific meetups or groups or clubs is super, super helpful. Um, a category that I've been interested in is natural language processing and AI. And some of the meetups that I get to go to have been amazing in terms of meeting great people who are working in the field, learning about what's happening in the field, and kind of you know 15, 20, 30 percent event where I wouldn't have had access to those people. So I think plugging into meetups and these online communities and going offline is is super important to that. After that, there's in many cities special interest groups around women entrepreneurs or people of color entrepreneurs or veteran entrepreneurs or whatever it may be, people who are coming from these different backgrounds and want to build companies. And I think you know, simple online searches will result in what those communities could look like and provide people the opportunity to plug into that. Um, You know, the advantage of the internet now is that a lot of people are tweeting about what's happening and what they're interested in. And I tell a lot of founders, you know, if you see VCs or founders that you admire tweeting about categories that you're really interested in, say blockchain, engage in banter, write a blog post. A lot of the people that have kind of Plug themselves into Silicon Valley or into the tech community who have come from non-traditional backgrounds have 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 experiences of doing that. They've written a blog post of, here's what I'm interested in, here's why, who can I talk to? And they kind of plug in through that way as well.
1: Yeah, and you've, Twitter is a great open... It's a great tool, yeah. ...architecture for meeting new people, people that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. So it's absolutely true. Um, there's been a lot of talk about product market fit. Um, and I heard you recently dive a bit into the topic of as you're evaluating companies, uh, product founder fit. And I was hoping you might give us a little more depth on that. Subject. Yeah,
2: yeah, totally. So, um, you know, for those of you who may not be familiar, product market fit is, does your product work in the market? And are there people who will use it, buy it, pay for it, whatever it may be? And we think a lot about product founder fit. So why are you, as the founder, the right person to build this company? What unfair advantage may you have that allows you (coughs) excuse me to really plug in and um, grow this in a way that wouldn't be possible for someone else it could be your research in school it could be your own personal research in the space passion for the space it could be an unfair family connection you have. Maybe your family historically has run a factory in the space and you're able to plug into that and build a product around it. But it's really tying into what about you makes you uniquely suited to build this company. And sometimes it may be non-intuitive. So one that's obvious is, okay, you were a doctor for 20 years and now you understand the intimate challenges of healthcare and so you're gonna build a health tech company. Sometimes it may be the complete opposite. You had no connection to the healthcare space, But as an outside perspective, you see all of the challenges with it. So you feel like you can bring a fresh set of eyes and you kind of use that in your pitch saying, I don't know, I'm not jaded by the challenges of it, but I can come in fresh.
1: So when someone's pitching, it would be nice for them to include a slide as to why they have a unique advantage. Yes,
2: absolutely. I mean, look, building a company is really hard and I have... So much admiration for people such as yourselves and other founders who are building these brands, companies, organizations, and putting all their passion and blood, sweat, and tears into doing it. And any advantage that you can have to be able to accelerate that, to be able to, instead of shoots and ladders, kind of use those opportunities to jump up, I think is golden.
0: So you do, you do a lot of, I think, uh, you do a fair amount of mentoring alongside investing, right? Because you take yeah. on a founder as well as a company. Totally. What's a question that you get asked more often than you were expecting, right? Like, what's a question that, and take a second to think about it, well, I'll wait, but like, you know, what's a question that is, uh, you know, you get from your mentees, where you go, huh, I wasn't expecting that.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, And I think I have a perspective on this because I've sat on the other side of the table So my background, I was at Google for a couple years. Um, I was at a couple different startups uh, as a product manager in the product capacity and was able to participate with a couple of the startups in the fundraising process. I was not the founder, but was able to participate and read about VCs, listened to podcasts, met VCs and kind of had a sense of what VCs did. Um, But I think to answer your question, I'm often surprised at how opaque that VC process Mm -hmm. and the VC world can be for founders. Even founders who are amazing at building their company, at growing their company, at hiring, inspiring, kind of navigating all the elements of building a business may just ask questions about what it takes to raise the next round, um, what a VC's return profile may be like based on their fund size. A little bit of the VC mechanics that now that I'm on this side, I'm like, yeah, it is quite opaque, and I hope that I can be a part of making it more and more transparent. And I think my team has really bought into that as well. But that question comes up a lot.
0: Is there a resource that you would point that you point people to, a book or a or a, anything that? other than yourself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I probably should have a book or a podcast or something that I point to. There are a number of good podcasts out there. I think the Andreessen Horowitz podcast is, is quite good and they kind of shed light into that. I think the best resource is actually not me, not other VCs, but other founders. Other founders who have been there, done that. So if you're a founder going out to raise a Series B, talk to other founders who've done it in a similar field or an adjacent field and ask them, you know, what are the metrics that you showed? What are the do's and don'ts? What are the myths and myth busters that you want to know? Um, because I think that's really helpful as you go into that fundraising process. Cool.
1: So as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm very intrigued by sort of cultural differences between um, this. I mean, you, you work in both Seattle and San Francisco, and they're Of course both left coasts so it's you know there's some definite similarities there but I'd be interested to hear about the cultural differences you've experienced both in terms of what the entrepreneurs what the founders think and say and feel and then from also the funder side
2: yeah um, and and to add on to that I spend a lot of time in LA New York so I think there's differences in all the all the different pockets So I've been in Silicon Valley for, it'll be 12 years in September. So it's a long time. Um, And I've been in that tech community pretty much the whole time. I went to Stanford, which is just really immersed in entrepreneurship and technology, and then went on to Google startups and, and venture capital. So I feel like I have seen a lot of the evolution of that over the last 12 years. I mean, the iPhone came out when I was at Stanford and we got to take like app creation classes, one of the first classes that Stanford offered on app making. And I think that culture of having that university there, having companies like Apple, Facebook, Google based there and kind of pumping out these entrepreneurs, engineers, designers, artists, business leaders creates this ecosystem that is very different from other places that I visit. Um, I think a part of it is kind of the nothing is impossible attitude, which is amazing and energizing. But coupled with that can sometimes come a sense of growth for growth's sake without a focus on strong business fundamentals. And I think on the venture capital side, we often see companies that are like, yep, I'm going to kind of grow like this. And there may not be too much attention to what the unit economics look like or where monetization looks like over time. And you may see that with companies that have seemingly unicorn valuations but may not have the business fundamentals to truly justify that. Versus, I think, uh, in a market like Seattle, I see closer attention to unit economics, closer attention to I'm gonna make money earlier on. And I think both have their puts and takes, right? I think with the former, you're like, wow, this is a big dream, and I think this is going to be huge with a capital H. And you may think with the latter, is it a little bit more conservative? Are they really shooting for the moon? Or are they, you know, hmm. staying atmospheric? And so it it has its, its pulls and takes. And I think it's, I appreciate being able to straddle a bunch of the different markets because I see people's ability to think in different ways. I personally as an investor grow by seeing these different perspectives and I'm able to ask different types of questions to really get underneath what the founder is trying to say and grow because just because someone says they have a one trillion total addressable market, it doesn't mean they actually do, but they've just been coached or the atmosphere and the ecosystem in which they're in is encouraging them to say that. So I think it allows me to really get underneath what's what's really happening. Um, And I think increasingly... In Uh In in all of these markets, I mean, there's people coming out of these amazing companies in the Valley. We have Google, Facebook, Apple, things like that. And here you have Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia, Redfin, a lot of these great companies that are also getting people who are like, hey, I've been here for five, seven years or whatever and I want to build something. So I think every time there's kind of this linchpin amazing company, it's great to see the people coming out and building startups. And hopefully LA will continue to have that with companies like Snapchat and other tech companies growing. There, like bird, also. Yeah.
1: So, have you in the consumer space your zone? Is there a particular niche that you are? I'm assuming there is a particular niche you're like really paying attention to right yeah. now. Yeah, like,
2: yeah, <laughs> you want to know all my secrets?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, don't you don't have to let too much go? No, there, no,
2: no worries. Um, then. yeah, so within consumer, Mavron, we are we're really broad, right? So consumer is broad, consumer is B to C. So this is everything from FinTech, health tech, social apps, e-commerce, frontier tech. I mean, it's a really broad swath of things. If I had to pick within those categories, what I'm really excited about, and I was telling someone earlier today, I'm really interested in what one would define as consumer frontier tech. So what is the next generation of consumer technology? What are the next ways in which people will interact with technologies? And some examples to kind of hone in is consumer augmented reality. How will we as people interact with the physical world around us with digital overlays? And we've seen things like Pokemon Go by Niantic take off, and I think that is just just the beginning I think Snapchat filters on your face are just the beginning and I'm super excited to see where we'll go in that category and I think increasingly people are especially younger people kids teens and tweens are used to hey there could be some digital thing right here that I could see if I pulled up my phone or maybe my goggles or glasses in the future so but within frontier tech I mean it's broad it's consumer AR VR we have some we have some amazing VR investments actually here in Seattle Um, it is automation It is robotics for consumers, so robots that then transfer into better experiences for consumers, better lives for consumers. And it's also things like voice. I mean, I was telling you earlier, I'm extremely bullish on voice and excited to see how we use voice to interact with the worlds around us. And what I believe will happen over the next three to five years is we will go from a computer being a room to on the desk to in our backpack or purse to in our pocket to the world around us like the spatial computing sphere is incredibly exciting for me and that can be everything from this couch listens to what i say and is able to learn from that to i can see things on the mirror and the world around me is is my computational device
0: i have so many Okay, we can have more conversations about that <laughs> later. Because that's, I think that, I would classify that as interfaces. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating, especially the way, the, like the emotional relationship that I have with the echo in my house, uh, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask a couple of questions about uh, your perspective and worldview sure. before uh, we go to our climbing segment.
1: Which oh I'll explain <laughs> in a second.
0: Uh, so you've you've had this background in math your whole life and i'm mm-hmm. curious if there's any habit or way of looking at the world that you take from that background that you think is if not unique it just it's a, it's a way that you consistently check things that you look mm-hmm. at now mm-hmm. and if so if you would share that sort of you know litmus test or idea or point of view with us
2: yeah i have a very specific answer to that which dates back to my sophomore year of high school so My sophomore year of high school, I went to this amazing school in Portland called Jesuit High School and had this amazing math teacher named Dr. Gorman and was exposed to very young, because of Dr. Gorman and and because of my dad and my late grandfather was a math professor to the field of number theory. And number theory is the study of whole numbers and it's not something that one would be able to explore as a 15, 16 year old, but I was able to. And within number theory, I was exposed to prime numbers and i developed this like obsession with with prime numbers and to this day i have like weird OCD around prime numbers like for example I can only set my alarm to prime number minutes no way if I'm in the gym I can only do prime number reps it can be problematic at times but I, I got obsessed with prime numbers and I started reading books about prime numbers Actually one is <laughs> <prime>
1: numbers. <laughs> one rep I can do one rep that's, that's gonna well, be my <laughs> excuse from well now on. I
2: hate to burst your bubble but <laughs> one bad. is neither prime nor composite Three. so two two okay two is my favorite dang, prime. It. dang it I just
1: doubled my workout (laughs)
2: But two is my favorite number because it's the only even prime. So it's incredibly unique. Anyways, um, so I I stumbled across the idea of the Riemann hypothesis, which we don't know if prime numbers follow a pattern. We just don't know. This has not been solved. And this is a millennial problem. So if you solve it, you win a million dollars. Go out there and solve it. But my, when I was a sophomore in high school, I thought, my <laughs> I thought my life's mission was to go and solve the Riemann hypothesis. Sadly, I think that life mission has passed. But I spent this summer uh, just digging into this and trying to find patterns in prime numbers. And I think I used archaic Stone Age methods. But for my 15 or 16-year-old mind, it was fascinating to spend time digging into something and thinking that I saw a pattern and then instantly being challenged like, oh, there's no pattern. And I think that line of thinking has accompanied me really throughout my life because it's very easy to see patterns. tea leaves. Yeah. To say, oh, I know exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You, you nailed that. Which, exactly. Which is to say, like, I have seen A, B, C, D, and therefore the next letter is going to happen and it's going to look like an E. But I think the attitude of these prime numbers have always thrown me for a twist and have thrown hundreds of millions of mathematicians to that twist, has allowed me in, in regular life to embrace that idea of a challenge, of a twist, but also I think in, in venture capital, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about pattern recognition, pattern recognition, pattern recognition. What are the patterns you're seeing and how do you learn from them and how do you invest in the right companies based on them? But oftentimes, the best companies are coming when you break a little bit outside that pattern, when you throw the pattern out the door and say, yeah, sure. Maybe no one is going to get in a random person's car and tell them to drive them home, but let's throw the pattern out the door and let's see what happens. And so I hope, I'm still early in my venture career, but I hope that that mindset will allow me to be really great at this job.
0: Cool, that's wonderful. So, my last question on perspective then is what, because we're big believers in, you know, part of, uh, it's been it's baked into part of dent and where we do things is you got to get out of your routine out of your personal pattern uh, to you know to get perspective on when you're in the thick of it and you got to do that on some regular basis. Do you have anything that you keep as a personal habit to help you? Um, you know, reset. Yeah, reset. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I mean I think this ties back to the very one of the first points you made, which is I grew up in a household where. My parents loved making me uncomfortable, (laughs) Um, whether that was go up and talk to somebody or try something that you've never done before or um, or explore an idea that may seem extremely foreign. And that habit has stayed with me um, throughout my life and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So I've never been a great athlete, and you may see that shortly in the next video segment. But I've always done sports. I've always done sports. I've always done athletic-y things, climbing mountains with my dad um, or going on walks with my mom or running with my sister, whatever it may be. And a a daily habit, to answer your question, that I've incorporated that pushes me beyond the comfort zone is is in the field of, of fitness and doing things that... I don't think I could ever do whether that's taking uh, Afro Brazilian dance class that I've never done before, or trying to lift a weight that I never thought I could do, or jump rope. I I, I couldn't jump rope uh, until the last year, and now I can do a hundred nonstop jump ropes. It's pretty cool. It's so I think really pushing in that number. way. It's okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, but have... I think it, I think it's pushing in that way. But um, you know, the the other way to, I think to really break patterns is is people. And I know you mentioned earlier in Dent, it's about building relationships and building connections with people, and it's so easy to do it with the people that look, breathe, talk, walk like us. So I think there's two points there. One is oftentimes at the surface, the people that look, breathe, talk, walk like us actually don't, and if you get a little bit deeper, you may find this experience in life that they had that you're just like, wow, you are this person that I never knew, and I feel like we have a connection that's different. Um, but it's also going outside the people that look, breathe, talk, walk like us and, and connecting with them and going past those comfort zones, whether that's going to a place of worship that's that's not your own or the affinity group that's not your own or even a restaurant that's 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 not of your own culture.
1: Yeah. Well that happened today. We're on a call today. I got a perspective on something. I went, oh, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. It's very different. It's totally off yeah. the charts for me. And I'm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and in a good way.
0: Yeah. So uh, I want to introduce this little segment that we've been doing uh, since we started the podcast. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the collective, this beautiful venue, is one of our partners. And part of what this venue offers is a giant bouldering wall over there. And we can't do a show like this in a venue with a giant bouldering wall and You're not use something. it. Part of it is that, uh, to what we are just talking about, Dent... It works to put people a little bit outside of their comfort zone. That's great. Um, and this is a, and and usually in a way that involves some kind of physical activity because that's just for all kinds of science. That's a good idea. Uh, and we thought this was a really wonderful way to capture that spirit of dent uh, and do something fun and competitive in the show. Uh, so we have each of our guests go up a route on the climbing wall, and it's uh, and it's timed, and uh, then we uh, have a little leaderboard. There's one wrinkle, though, which is that we showed up today at the wall and realized that they had gotten rid of our route. So the route that Anarchia did is different than the route that the others have done. So
2: Much harder.
0: Much much harder. Much harder. No. Uh, so we're actually resetting the leaderboard today, but we're going to show you how uh, folks have done in the past. We've had our prior guests show up. Should uh, I Well, sure, if you want. Um, but we'll see how our prior guests have done. Uh, and then actually maybe we're queued up to show the video of Anargia first. Oh, I don't know what the thumbs up means.
2: Oh, that's me. Here we me. go.
0: Okay. Up she goes. She's getting oh. a good start there. Look at that big step. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the weight over the center. Good. And, uh, and then you'll see the top of the route, uh, in just a moment. There it is. Wow. So that was it. You I went think that straight up. Thank you. I look
2: here. a little frantic.
0: So that is your time. 10 seconds. Ten wow. 10.15. Is it prime? No, 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 it's not, it's
2: not, yeah. 10 is not, 15 is no, not, but, 10, 1, 5 is also not.
0: Yeah. Well, but odd, that's okay. So that's a good start. That's a good start, yeah. But so that is our new leaderboard. I, just for fun, can we show our, our previous leaderboard here? So, so we, we faced a little <laughs> bit of an awkward challenge with putting you on that leaderboard. Fair. Um, but you did, a, you did a great job. And to be honest, I think if you had done the other route, you probably would have been at the top of this leaderboard. Rick, I'll take Rick it. is the one who did the fastest on the old route. Um, but you were uh, you were crushing it. So I well, think my, my two right cousins
2: up. are semi pro boulderers, and one sets sets routes. So I'll, I'll give them all the credit for taking me bouldering.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next month, Jason Nine, whoever we interview, will get on the wall and do the entire interview you have promised hanging. never Wild to get clinging. on the wall, so <laughs> <laughs> that will there. be a challenge I'll get there are you kidding the food here is too good um I you stop eating
0: I don't know I, I can I can certainly ask one more question you might be able to ask one more question but then I want to make sure that we give let's, uh, yeah, let's hope it a enough. little bit of time Look, yeah, we, to folks in the room yeah, uh, to ask questions and of course if there's anybody on the stream and it looks like we probably do have somebody online who has a question uh maybe it's your father as promised <laughs> um, and uh, so if anybody in the room has a question, let us know, and if not, let's hand the mic over to our friend Duffy, who will, who will give us the question from the stream. And I don't think that mic is going to be voiced through here, so it'll just... Be- we, we can repeat the question. It'll, it'll go on the stream, it just won't uh, okay, okay,
2: okay, okay. Uh, so we have a question from David Geller who asked, uh, have you observed ageism bias in I funding did. evaluations? Yeah. Um, So the question is about ageism bias uh, in funding evaluations, but I guess I can also address it in in, in general startup uh, world and venture capital. And I think um, the sad reality is that I personally, and I know many other people, have seen many different isms and many different biases that come into play in venture capital funding um, and in founders getting access to resources and capital. And ageism is certainly one of those isms. And I think this is a great question because it's an ism that is often overlooked or ignored. Uh, And some people may assume that, well, if someone is older, they are more experienced. And so it must be easier for them to raise capital and to build a company. And I don't have the data off the top of my head. But I think some experiences that I've had and seen is a propensity to attribute some of the things that are also maybe attributed to women founders to older founders. Whether that is, you know, how intense can they be? How, can, how intense can they really be? Um, are they gonna go hard? Are they gonna work you know, 80, 100 hour weeks? And it's not often said, oh, it's because they're older that they may not, but there may be that overarching sentiment of, oh, well, well they're older, or, oh, they have kids, or, oh, they have, they're women, so they have other responsibilities, or whatever it may be, and I think there's a number of things that we have to talk about within this. I mean, this could go on forever, but um, I'll end it in that one, everyone, VCs, founders, employees, all of us in the room really need to be aware of those isms because they are going to exist inevitably in some subconscious, something or the other may come up. And so I think first having the awareness of it. And then once you have the awareness, making sure that one is actively counteracting that and understanding that with each different type of human being there are going to be advantages and disadvantages and everyone deserves that shot to build a company and the advantage is what you really need to look for. What what can go right with this person that's different from what my pattern is telling me of what a company could be. Yeah, step outside the pattern, what could go right? What could the experience this person is bringing provide the wisdom, the ability to hire and inspire people, you know, whatever it may be, but thinking outside of what could go wrong.
0: Yeah. We got one right there. Again, you won't hear yourself, but the stream will hear you. Thanks. Um, I've been hearing for the last maybe two or three years whispers and conversations about a second tech bubble um, and, and the fact that people believe that a lot of startups are overfunded and there's too much money coming into this um you know venture capitalism coming into the startup scene um i'm just curious what your response to that idea is that you know we had the dot-com bubble you know many years ago but that there's so many startups now that don't seem to be making money and yet are pulling in so much i mean twitter even you know four or five years ago was a great example of this what where do you think we are in the economy of technology right now
2: yeah that's that's a great question and um I unfortunately or fortunately can't predict when it will happen, but I have been promised one. Um, In that, uh, I am very lucky to work with experienced investors who have seen not one, but multiple ups and downs in the cycles. And one of one of my main motivations and a big motivation for joining a firm like Mavron was to work with investors who have seen those ups and downs so that I can learn from them and perhaps learn from the challenges and the triumphs that they experienced during those times. And I'll answer that question with a couple different things. One, yes, there is a lot of venture capital money flowing and the capital is, you know, almost a, a commodity. There is a lot of venture capital dollars chasing way less companies so people are are getting capital flowing and there are a lot of companies out there that akin to what i said a little bit earlier don't have solid business fundamentals or business models that could replicably make margin and money to keep the business going should they not have high funding by vc or any other funding source so i think we're in in a situation of that Um, when, when will it hit, I don't know, but what advice do we give startups that are raising, and maybe if you're building a company or anyone else here building a company, is a couple of things. One is, if it comes, understand what you can do in your business to extend your runway. So how, what are the things that you can do to cut down your burn, or how can you build a business early on such that it has the abilities to drop things such that you can decrease burn, or is low on the burn up front? Um, And and how do you really build a, a house, for an analogy, that is structured and protected to weather the potential storm? And there's some businesses that may find it incredibly difficult to raise in a disadvantaged market and I think some of those businesses could be some of the frontier tech businesses that are more dependent on hardware to hit or are more dependent on consumers to think in a whole new way for them to really get traction and for those businesses especially we say kind of hunker down and be ready to to weather the storm of whatever a dry spell in funding could look like. Another thing we think about is uh, founders that have a superpower in fundraising because that is extremely important for building a company. Yes, you have to be able to have the idea and market and get users and stuff, but also fundraising and being able to fundraise in subsequent stages, especially because we at Mavron are doing seed and Series A. Does this founder have the ability to raise later rounds, and can they raise those later rounds in potentially disadvantaged market situations? Um, and I think realistically, it is something that, that, that will probably come um, and something that we as as VCs have to think about, and you know, one lesson I've I've learned and, and heard is discerning and understanding between acting with a lot of hubris when a market is extremely good, um, and recognizing that, and, and pulling away from that from that attitude, and making sure that the humility of the market can switch at any time is is always ever present, and and thinking a lot about
0: that. Can I have another? We get another one from online. Go for it.
2: Uh, so we have a Facebook question from Tracy Hoskinson uh, who wanted to ask, uh, when talking about diversity and talking about who you fund, are non-technology
0: heavy companies that have a strong social equality mission?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I, I'm interpreting that in a couple different ways. So so one, I think there are a lot of non-technology or very limited technology-based companies that are growing and growing at a venture scale than ever before. And that is thanks largely to tools like AWS, Shopify, Optimizely, I mean these off-the-shelf tools, Stripe, that allow people who may not have technology chops to quickly drag and drop and build something that can actually grow at a very quick pace. And we have plenty of examples of companies that have been able to grow at venture scale without, let's say, someone who has a computer science degree in the early founding team. The nature of technology today is it is so ubiquitous that almost everything is technology, right? So you could be an e-commerce brand whose technology is you're selling products online, which is technology, um, but a larger part of your technology play may be that you are learning, hearing, and listening from your users at a rate that was not possible before. And that's because of social media, that's because of the software that exists, that's because of the targeting that was not possible before and is possible now because of of technology. So I think as a non-technology-based founder, yes, you can build a, quote, technology startup and grow at a venture scale. Um, and then the second part of the question around social good, uh, as consumer investors, we are increasingly seeing that consumers, so regular people, more and more want the products, services, apps that they use to have some kind of meaning. And it's it's not completely everywhere, but that is increasingly a trend that we're seeing, especially amongst younger consumers, millennials, and, and younger teens, tweens, which is, I want this to mean something or I want this to have some kind of story behind it, or some kind of purpose. So I think there are a lot of advantages to building brands that have social missions or social causes or some kind of social thoughtfulness around them. Thank
0: you. So I think, did you have anything no. you want to wrap with? Because I, I want to say my... Thank you to Bootstrapper Studios for doing sure. the video. That's our Thank another you. one of our partners. They do a wonderful job, as you've noticed. Um, and if you have needs uh, with video, either streaming a live event uh, or working with them for some kind of uh, recorded uh, you know, video or story or launch video or explainer, uh, please look them up. Um, they're really fantastic. And uh, thank you all for being here, especially to our young patient one over there. I remember being a kid, and these kinds of things <laughs> Love can that be a kid
2: here. <laughs> boring.
0: <laughs> and uh, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you all.